Travel, it's one of life's greatest pleasures. When we journey abroad, we discover new places and meet fascinating people, but we also gain perspective and take on a wider view of the world around us. That was Trevor Ranges, and I'm Scott Coates. After more than 25 years living and working in Asia, we've developed an amazing network of interesting characters throughout the region. Talk Travel Asia is our way of sharing them with you. Plug in and get connected to hot tips, interesting perspectives, and expert travel advice as we cultivate travel insight through intelligent conversation. Slow travel is a buzzword that's been kicking around a while, a trend in the travel industry, some may say, in the vein of ecotourism. Just as the terminology has evolved from global warming to climate change, however, more humans are increasingly considering their footprint both on the environment and on the destinations they visit, often in an economic way. If slow travel means more than massive exhaust output of air travel, if slow travel means picking one destination instead of a dozen and then using local means of transportation, bicycles or hiking even, to explore an area in more depth at a more leisurely pace, then I'm all for it. Today, we have a returning guest and longtime friend of the destination he lives in, Stuart McDonald, to give us his understanding of and experiences with slow travel in Asia. This is Trevor Ranges in Siem Reap, Cambodia, and Scott Coates joins me once again in Bangkok. How's it going, Scott? It's going well, man. I'm trying to uh, live slow at the moment, although, uh, you know, work of life's got me, but I'm doing well. And, you know... I'm not sure if I've seen more articles about slow travel the last while or because we've been planning this episode. I just notice I'm noticing it more. But either way, I think it's a really neat topic to discuss and to get other people thinking about. Yeah, you know, I kind of did some work in slow travel, let's say. Um, the second time that I was paid to ride a water buffalo cool. was for a Tourism Authority of Thailand promo video about slow travel. Huh. Um, so I had to sit on a buffalo, ride a buffalo, and 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 talk about slow travel in Thailand. And, uh, you know, it's A, I love water buffalo, so it was an honor to ride a water buffalo. And if slow travel means taking the time to ride water buffaloes, you should definitely do it because they're amazing. But I don't know that it just means traveling slowly like physically slowly uh, maybe it means just getting more hands-on in-depth experiences by maybe like slowing down to smell the flowers if you will mm -hmm. um, and learn a bit more about the the culture and the, the nature of your environment bird watching perhaps or something you know i don't remember what my line was for the video but like i like the concept yeah, absolutely. And that is a cool sounding promo. I'd love it if you could find the video and post it. But, you know, I seem to remember you talking about that way back when. And, you know, I'm quite interested in this episode as I think I know what slow travel means and implies, but I'm not 100% sure. And Stuart's a very cool, well thought out guy. So I'm kind of curious what his thought of it is. And like your intro, I think it might be making a deliberate effort to stay put somewhere for a little bit longer. Definitely not doing a typical tour. Do you think you've ever had a trip that would qualify as slow travel, Trevor? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, recently we did those episodes where we talked about our first trip ever to Asia. And uh, I think that was kind of always my travel MO. You know, I don't mm. like to plan so much when, when I travel, at least. I mean, well, that, that's not saying when I when I'm a travel writer, you plan everything like just you have to because you have to do so much and see so much and experience so much so i think maybe from that experience when i did get to travel for my own 
pleasure, I did so at my own leisure uh, by, you know, just picking a spot and not even booking things or, you know, I like to explore. I like to just kind of play it by ear, I think. And, and I think that's a slow travel kind of philosophy. Yeah, I think you're generally better at that than I am. But while we were planning this episode, I realized without even intending to do it, I had quite a slow trip. And that was in 2013. I think it was around April or May. I'd sold my shares in Smiling Obino to a former guest, Dan. And I had friends in the Kathmandu Valley. And I went there for a month. And I spent a couple weeks up at a place called Shivapuri Retreat. It's kind of on the edge of the Kathmandu Valley up on the mountains. And I just, you know, I got up when I wanted to get up. I read books on the nice grass. I walked around. I jogged. I rode my mountain bike all around there. But yeah, I just kind of stayed put for two weeks in total there. And then I also went down to one of the old capitals, Patan, which is kind of part of Greater Kathmandu now. But I spent, I think, five or seven days at a little family run, you know, guest house splash small hotel. And I just enjoyed being there. I would go to the, the public Durbar Square and, you know, have a tea and just sit and look at people and they'd look at me and I was in no rush. I didn't have a bunch of sites I needed to see because I'd been there before. So yeah, actually, you know, that's, I think, unintentionally month-long slow trip and it's pretty awesome. One of my, my favorites. And, you know, my wife and I were talking about that day we retire and I can't believe we're at an age where we could start to think it's a decade away or so. But, you know, she was saying, where would you want to live? And I said, you know, I think rather than buying a place to live, I would prefer to say, just pick a tiny town in Japan and go and rent a house for a couple months and bring a bike and just stay there. And then, you know, maybe go to Turkey and same thing, go to a small place and just rent a place for a couple months and just experience a place by being in a small place within that place for a couple months. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever given it that much thought, like what slow travel means or something, you know, and I was trying to see like, all right, so my parents kind of do that. Like they travel, they go to a place and they, they spend like a month here or a month there, but then they're always like, it's a month here and then a month somewhere else and then a month somewhere else and then a month somewhere else. They're always on the go in a slow kind of way, maybe because they like to walk and explore too. So maybe they're like long-term hmm. slow travel enthusiasts, but I am curious to hear how Stuart defines it. And, and what his thoughts on it are, just because uh, maybe it's something that is is important for people to, to think more about as they plan their travels. Absolutely. And just before we get into that chat with Stuart, um, you know, Trevor and I shell out our own cash to keep this going. There's not really profit happening. And it's good people that are our patrons that keep this show going. So click donate on the home page or go to patreon.com, search the show name, become a patron like Chris R and a whole lot of other folks. And they, for a few dollars a month upwards, sponsor us and they get that warm feeling knowing they get to hear this show every two weeks. But also they actually get something every week because in between these shows, we share a private patron only conversation Trevor and I have, or often we'll shoot a video of us out exploring and doing stuff and share that. So become a patron too, keep it going and uh, let's get into the slow travel. Originally from Australia, Stuart McDonald is the founder of TravelFish.org, one of the best, most authentic, unbiased sources for Asia travel information. And he joins us from Bali. Hey there, Stuart. How are you doing? I'm um, good, thanks. Yeah, good. Good. Well, we had you on the show 
eons ago. We thought it had been like last year, but it was a long, long time ago. And we've seen your name around talking about slow travel. And we thought, wow, we haven't thought or talked about slow travel at all. So that's why we're here. But before we get into it, where are you originally from? And what first brought you to Asia in a professional capacity? Okay, well, I'm originally from Australia. Um, and I ended up in Southeast Asia at the end of a round the world trip in, I landed here in 93, I think it was. And I didn't know anything about it. Uh, I just had to pick somewhere on the ticket after Kathmandu. And I said, well, it was Bangkok or Bali. And I didn't want to go to Bali because of the, you know, reputation for trashy Australian tourists. So I picked Bangkok and, you know, you arrive there from Kathmandu, it's, it's late at night and you walk out at Don Wong and it's like the, you can, you're wearing the air and everyone's got a motorbike and I fell, fell in love with it. And um, we I just kept coming back ever since and then we moved, I moved up with my wife in 97. And so we were in Bangkok for... About seven years, then Phnom Penh for two, Jakarta for two, and then we've been in Bali for a long stretch now. So slowly, slowly working way, working our way back to Australia, you know. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. It seems almost that you and I were destined to cross paths one place or another since we both <laughs> lived in Bangkok a while, Cambodia and Indonesia. And uh, full disclosure to our listeners, I did some work for Stuart and Travel Fish many years ago that I think we talked about on an episode that I did talking about being a travel writer. But uh, yeah. I had some great, great times uh, working for you at Travel Fish. How's that project going? That, I'm trying to remember where that was even or was it somewhere in the south? I did Bangkok. Bangkok? No, I did Bangkok. I lived in Bangkok and I knew Bangkok well. And and I went and I stayed in a guest house over on Khao San Road for like a week to, to do the Khao San Road area. Right. And then I stayed down in Silom. Like I went home for like a week and then I went to Silom and I stayed in a hotel down in Silom for like a week. Right. And, and it was fun because I got to really, you know, see everything in Bangkok, really dug in there. It was fun. It's an interesting kind of town, you know, and you think about how much has changed since then, you know, like when Kalsan used to be like the main, you know, where all the backpackers hung out. And I know there's, there's still like a backpacker element there, but it's so much more um, diverse and dispersed than, than what it was back in the day. So, Stuart... You've been writing a lot about tourism sustainability kind of during the pandemic, and I'm wondering mm. what prompted that pivot and in interest? I guess I started thinking about it pre-pandemic, uh, probably 2016, 2017. Um, I mean, I've been traveling around in circles in Southeast Asia for quite a while, and what I was finding was more and more places I was going to, I just didn't want to go back to anymore. You know, and mm -hmm. and I don't want to be the guy, you know, you should have been here yesterday kind of thing. But um, it was really becoming a grind, I guess you'd say. And then when the pandemic hit and everything uh, shut down and we were in we were in Bali for the for the duration of the pandemic and just seeing how it affected people living here. And the, obviously the businesses, like, you know, loads of places went to the wall. And it really sort of soured me a bit on tourism. And I didn't think, 
some some portions of the of the industry were were behaving in the most responsible way and and just sort of seeing like how the uh, the direct effects here and so then I decided to go back to school and start this master's, which is all about, you know, what responsible tourism and sustainable tourism and blah, blah, blah is. And it just really sort of, it was a bit of a watershed moment for me. And so I really have been looking at it all through that kind of lens. I mean, when I was in my 20s kicking around, uh, sustainable tourism was not on my horizon, mm. you know. Um, it just did not even, I didn't even consider it, you know. Right. And yet now uh, when I travel, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's different to the 90s, but I mean, I, I see issues everywhere. And um, it's sort of that thing of like the scab, you know, like once you start picking at it, you can't stop. And so it's been very big change for me personally and in, in like how I travel and, and also what the message I'm trying to get across with travel fish and that kind of thing, you know. Yeah, that's cool. It's and, and you know, for people who want to check out our show notes, we'll have links to all of this. But I remember, Stuart, you wrote like a number of think pieces. I guess you could call it like a blog. You have a blog for the for the travel fish. Yeah. And uh, some very thought, thoughtful things about what was going on um, during the crisis. Because like here in Siem Reap, which is, you know, 95% tourist economy mm. i could imagine like having lived in bali like what ubud was like like ubud is like his traffic jam of big buses before covid and then suddenly once again it, it was like ubud of yesteryear maybe for a little while and the one thing you were saying maybe that i got was that maybe like people are suddenly like there's a drug taken away from them this this tourism economy this like mass market like just exchange of currency that's suddenly gone and yeah. it makes people kind of desperate but at the same time i think you could see like oh this is what bali's really like bali is like a, a quiet laid-back place that's what people attracted attracted people there in the first place yeah yeah i i think with with Bali in particular, because I mean, uh, we've been, I've been here on and off now about 16 years, I think it is. And of everywhere I've been in Southeast Asia, I've never seen anywhere change so quickly. Uh, and so on, on the scale of it is just, I've never seen anything like it. It's like Sionicville almost. And, um, well, not as bad as Sionicville, <laughs> just to, you know, but it was really, yeah. um, incredible. Um, and then when it all went away, and so on one hand, it was like, well, this is great. I can get down to the beach on my bike in 30 seconds instead of 15 minutes and like that very selfish sort of view of it. Um, but on the other hand, like people were going to the wall and losing their complete livelihoods. And for a lot of people who were involved in tourism, I think it was a bit of a, a wake-up moment to sort of realize that, well, maybe this isn't really a job for life and that, like what if something else happens in the future and because particularly in the hotel industry here a lot of properties behave very poorly and sort of told staff well don't come in tomorrow and that was it you know uh, so there's a lot of day workers and that kind of stuff and it was very rough um, so I think that sort of soured or you know, maybe a reality check I mean it depends how you want to look at it um, but so, yeah, it was very, um, but then it's bounced back. Like, like now it's a madhouse again. So I really admire kind of you 
taking on this study and becoming interested in sustainability. I know Trevor's pivoted the last few years. I've pivoted the last few years and, and you have, and it's great that we live in a time when you can do that. And I've seen you speaking about and kind of promoting slow travel the last few months. So can you tell us what exactly does slow travel mean? I think it's, um, it's like all of, all of these uh, travel terms, uh, it's pretty open to interpretation. And the way I like to think of it is it's a frame of mind. It's, I mean, like, sure, if, if, you, if you're in a position where you're able to take a year off and go and travel very slowly, then that's great. But realistically, not many people have the means or the time or whatever to be able to do that. But I think even if you're somewhere for a day, you can you can have like a slower travel outlook, I guess, like rather than saying, right, this is what we're doing in the morning, then late morning, then lunchtime, then afternoon, then whatever, you know, and it's like a military expedition. I'm saying, well, screw that. And I'm just going to go and wander and take things slowly and see what I find and be surprised. And I think as uh, I was saying this the uh, last week in a, um, in a call that, um, in a way it's, it's putting yourself that little bit outside your comfort zone. And that's where sometimes interesting things can happen. And w- everyone's comfort zone is different. So like last time I was in Thailand, which was uh, just before the pandemic, I made a point of I went up into the northeast on the train and I just decided to get off the train at the wrong station. Um, And so then I got off and I spent a night in Nakhon Nowhere, you know. It wasn't actually called Nakhon Nowhere, but it may as well have been. Um, And it's sort of like, for me, it was really interesting because there's – there was no information about it. I had to find somewhere to stay. I had to find somewhere to eat on on the on the run, so to speak. And it wasn't like the most amazing experience I ever had or anything, but it was certainly interesting. And I'm not suggesting that that is what everybody should do, but I mean it's whatever you you normally do. Try and do something a little bit outside your comfort zone, and that doesn't involve running all over the place. You know, it is that cliche of slowing down and smelling the coffee, you know, Hmm. uh, soaking things up, particularly with the climate. You know, it's like so freaking hot. Hmm. Slower travel works. (laughs) I like that. I like that, that a philosophy is more of an answer than like something strictly defined just because we, we touched on it a little bit at the beginning of the show talking about uh, buzzwords like ecotourism and all that. Mm. You know? And uh, I guess for, for different people, slow travel could mean slightly different things, but, but that is good because you know, you should stop and smell the flowers, like literally, you know, and uh, explore, wander off the beaten path. Scott and I recently talked about our first trips ever to Asia. And that was like back in the day before there was the internet and access to information and, and actually not having that access made travel quote unquote slower. Yeah, I think, you know, exactly. so maybe like, maybe going to some of these places that you're going to talk about today, maybe some of these examples, cause they are a bit off the radar. It's mm. not easy to get a cell signal when you're on a boat, like on an Island in the middle of nowhere. You yeah. know? I mean, maybe Indonesia parts of Asia loan themselves to that still. Yeah. I think it, the phone is a big thing. You know, if you don't have a phone, then, you know, you can't plan out trips that are a military expedition. Like the physically traveling slowly is important, 
but I think it is also what's going on in your head um, and just sort of it, even even like in the preparatory kind of stages of it, you know, like if someone's coming to Southeast Asia from anywhere else in the world, they're going to be doing whatever, like a 5, 10, 15-hour flight to get here. And so they might sit there watching, I don't know, Marvel flicks or whatever on the on the on the flight. But you know, sit down, teach yourself twenty words of the language instead. Hmm. And so that's making a different use of your time uh, that will make a difference when you're here. Even though you're sure you're not going to be t- talking about the Communist Manifesto in Thai, but if you're able to say hello or count to ten or whatever, that is immediately going to change the interactions you're having with people um, for the better. Yeah, it's like all these little bits and pieces that you can sort of pull in to, to say, well, how could I do that differently? How could I do something that is going to give me a better better time but is also going to put me in a position where I'm better able to contribute into like local economies and, you know, all, all of that kind of stuff. So we're going to get into some specific destinations I know you've been to and traveled slow. But just before that, is there kind of a a Cole's Notes like checklist of how one slow travels? Like here's five things you do to slow travel and here's some things you definitely do not do to slow travel because I'm getting the picture of it now. But are there a few key things that we need to know? I think it's there's no there's no one rule fits all. Um, So last year when I sort of got on this whole thing, I made myself some goals. One was I don't fly domestically uh, if it's possible to do the same trip uh, within 18 hours on the ground. Hmm. I've stuck to that with one exception when I was in Sarawak with my son and we did a trip one way by four-wheel drive and boat that took 12 hours and just to keep my son talking to me, we did get the 30-minute <laughs> flight in the opposite direction. But so that's that's a decision that I've made that, that is sort of working for me, um, but obviously for others it might not work as well. And the other thing is when I fly, I need to stay wherever I'm going uh, a week for every 1,000 kilometers. So, again, that's just an arbitrary oh. thing that I just sort of thought, well, this this is probably doable. And in the end, it hasn't been quite doable because I've had a couple of trips that I haven't been able to change. Right. But it's something that I'm working towards. So it's those kind of things, you know. Hmm. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I like people who set kind of terms for themselves that challenge themselves and do good for, in this instance, the communities that you visit. So... Yeah, we, during brainstorming, had suggested maybe discussing pros and cons of slow travel. Like, that's interesting, but, like, that kind of changes your planning, that airplane thing, because I immediately thought of, like, you might end up in in an airport town that's not that interesting, but might have to spend a couple days there. So that could, like, impact your your travel. So maybe during these examples you give for us, uh, you can give us the pros and the cons. One you mentioned uh, was a trip to Cebu in the Philippines. I'm not Mm. very familiar with that area, and we haven't done a lot on the Philippines, so that's why I like that topic. And maybe that's a place that you hadn't spent as much time to, so it might be a more authentic experience to challenge your slow travel philosophy. So uh, let's hear about that one. Okay, well, Cebu, I, I had never been to the Philippines. It was my very first time there. 
Um, and it's an interesting case because the reason I was going uh, was because of uh, another, uh, another company that I picked up some contract work for during the pandemic. Uh, they were having a work thing there. They, the, their team is dispersed over the whole globe and they were bringing everyone together for four days in Cebu. And I thought, well, there's no way I'm flying there for four days. So I got in touch with them and said, could I change my ticket? And so I changed my ticket and ended up spending about two and a half weeks there. And so with the four-day work thing at the end of it. And so Cebu is its a good-sized island. It's like south of Manila. Um, it's primarily known for its diving, and I'm a keen diver. Uh, so... My daughter came with me for the first week, and so in Cebu City, we got a motorbike and uh, rode down to the, well, first we rode up into the mountain. It's a very long, thin island with um, a mountain range in the middle of it, not super high or anything, but it's mountainous. So we left Cebu City, went up into the mountains where there was this supposed eco-resort thing that wasn't really eco or a resort stayed there for a night and then the next day we rode down to mobile in the south which is a big dive destination so we stayed there for i don't know it was about five or six days something like that um just diving hanging out you know i found a very nice um like sustainable kind of place to to stay at and so we stayed there for a while and then my daughter left and then I rode back up to the top of the island, which is about an eight-hour motorbike ride, and went off to another little island off the top of it called Malapascua, which is known for its thresher sharks. And so I spent about a week there diving as well. And that, that was a really interesting island. It's very, very small. Um, like uh, in Thailand, it was, I guess similar to something like Kolipe, uh, but a different shape. But it's heavily developed and they're sort of still recovering from the pandemic and everything. And they've got the typical problems of any island, you know, waste and whatever. Um, so I've managed to fit some interviews and that kind of stuff in there while I was there. But the diving was, was very good. Um, and the, the Philippines was... I mean, I don't want to offend any of your Filipino listeners, but um, when I talked to friends, the most common thing that people would say about the Philippines was that the food isn't very good and that the people are extremely friendly. And so I found the food thing to not be true. Like the food was, I'm a big pork eater, so, you know, I was totally in my element there. They're very big on suckling pig and that kind of stuff. But the coffee is dreadful. It is the worst coffee I have had in my entire life. It is like, it's like they make it with seawater or something. It is absolutely vile. But the people, it, it is, they are, I know it's a cliche to say, oh, the locals are so friendly, but they are. It was really just blew me away how friendly the people were. And um, towards the end of the time, uh, towards the end of my time in Mal Malapaspa, I met this guy who used to work for Filipino tourism. And I was saying to him, like, you know, people had told me you guys are friendly, but, you know, shit, man, you really are this friendly. And he said the way he thinks about it is Filipinos have, um, what was it, an American brain, Chinese hands, and a Spanish heart. 
And I don't know about the American mm. brain and the, the um, Chinese hands bit, but the Spanish heart, totally. Like, I found the people incredible. Don't believe every, everything people t- tell you about the food. Don't drink the coffee and definitely spend some time chat, mm-hmm. chatting with the locals, you know. It's a beautiful place, um, but, uh, yeah, it's sort of it, – I. It sort of struck me as something like halfway between Malaysia and Indonesia, like mm. geographic-wise and stuff. It was, yeah. Um, yeah, a funny place. So, Stuart, the things that made that trip slow, like you rented a motorbike and you drove around, you tried to stay at a sustainable mm. eco kind of place, you stayed put for five days mm. at a time. Sounds like you spent more time yeah. talking to locals. Is there anything else about that trip that made it slow in your mind? I think the the traveling around by motorbike was about the uh, aside from like staying like a prolonged period mm. in each place, and I was only doing that really because I was diving. And most of the other travelers I met were flying everywhere and coming just to just to dive, like they weren't doing anything right. else. It's ironic that you you made a longer trip in order to create a slow travel experience, you know, because originally you were only intended to go to a conference for a short amount of time. So it's kind of cool that you, you basically you maximized the opportunity to take your time in, in, in that destination. That That's the thing, you know, like um, Milka for what it's worth is the, the way, I, you know, and I think like something I say a lot is anywhere is worth a night. You know, even even Seelickville is worth a night. So, I mean, when we ended up in this eco joint up on in the hills, it it was a dump. Uh, It was still worth it for the night. It was still worth it for the sunset. It was still worth it to talk to some of the people who are working there and that kind of thing. Would I go back there? No, but it was it was worth worth it. You know, it's pretty rare to go somewhere and think, my God, I just can't handle this. But then when I got to Malapascua, I had found somewhere that was super um, like low impact. So no, no air con, no hot water, like all, all that kind of stuff. And after four days, I couldn't hack it. Hmm. it. It was just, it was too, it was too basic. And because I was diving so much and everything, I needed to be able to, you know, the place was malarial and I just oh. couldn't couldn't hack it. So, I mean, there is a, a middle ground there somewhere. Um, but then I didn't go and move into like a super flash place that has air con at 15 degrees and, and whatever, you know. So it's sort of like, okay, I need to go a little bit up mm. um, because this, this isn't an endurance comp- you know, contest. So that was a great example. Um, you also mentioned before we started recording that you went on a trip to Raja Ampat in Indonesia, I believe, for like a multi-week slow travel trip. So what happened there? How was it slow? And what were maybe some of the pros and cons of that process? Well, the, the Raja Ampat trip was a very, I was very lucky. Um, a friend of mine uh, got in touch and he said, I want you to come. I'll pay. You just need to get there. Ooh. Where we were staying was very, uh, it's quite upmarket, um, and, but it's supposedly eco. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And so we, I was there for two weeks and I was diving 
continually for the first week, but then I had a problem. I had to stop diving. So after that, I was just snorkeling and hanging out and whatever. What island were you on there? Uh, I'm looking at a Google map. I like to see. Oh, uh, it's on Cree Island. Uh, on Google Maps, it might be marked. If you look, the place is called uh, Cer- uh, uh, Cerrito Bay was the resort. And it's set up by this this dude who's like seen as like one of the very early trailblazers of dive tourism out there. He was quite a character, to say the least. So he has set something up ostensibly uh, to be a high-end eco-resort. Uh, I mean, there's no way I could have afforded to pay to stay at this place. But he was he still had a long way to go, uh, I think, to get it to um, any kind of real eco-credentials. And I think that's the trade-off where you get to more expensive accommodation and so people expect certain standards then there's definitely a, an environmental trade-off with that kind of thing. So uh, he was still sort of feeling that one out. Um, but as a destination, it was incredible. I've never been never been anywhere like it. I've, um, I, don't, I don't mean the resort. I mean uh, Rajampat. Um, I went with very high expectations, and it still absolutely blew me away. Um, the house reef of where we were staying is the uh, most... It's the most diverse reef on the planet by species. So it was really uh, something else. Pretty much anywhere you can see the trajectory of where where this stuff is going. And as um, Raja Ampat becomes more high profile and that kind of thing, um, they're going to have more and more divers coming in. And uh, it's not always really well set up to, um, to grow in a in a sustainable way. But aren't these areas kind of, I mean, are there airports nearby there? Is it, I mean, you, I guess you flew in, but yeah. uh, I mean, a lot of this parts of, of, this is like Western Papua, New Guinea, and yeah. you know, like, uh, like what's it, Sulawesi, what the, all these islands, I forget, uh, these are remote areas. So I don't know that like, can you just fly in here anywhere? Does, is it like Everest now that just rich, rich people, you know? No direct flights from Bali. So for me, I had to fly from Bali to Makassar in Sulawesi and then Makassar to Sorong in Papua and then take a boat from there. Um, And this is where my 18-hour rule comes into play because to go there by ferry would have taken six days. In that case, I'm allowed to fly. There's also direct flights from Jakarta and that kind of thing. Tourism is increasing uh, considerably but from very low numbers. Um, they have a lot of dive liverboards there and that kind of thing. They have a lot of environmental issues around those. So it's very fragile and you would hope that it's going to be managed well um, and with a long-term vision, um, but we'll have to wait and see how that sort of pans out. A lot of people who go there, like you don't have to stay in a super fancy place like where I was at. Um, you can. There's a lot of local, locally run homestays. And they're all full board, so you get three meals a day and that kind of thing. And you're looking at it works out in US, it'd be like about 70 bucks a day or something like that um, for a very simple abode. But then you're staying in a Papuan business, it's Papuan owned, um, and so your money is staying with them uh, entirely. So that's an important 
um, important thing. And because of the difficulty and the and the cost of getting there, like it's cheaper to fly from Bali to Sydney and to Sarong, people do tend to stay a longer period. So I was there for two weeks, but I would say most visitors would stay at least a week um, just to make it worthwhile. Can people sort of slow travel anywhere in Asia? I mean, we're focused on Asia with this show, but I mean, can you even slow travel mm. in a big city like a major metropolis like Jakarta or Bangkok or Ho Chi Minh? Can you still do it there? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, look at Bangkok. I mean, I'm coming up to Bangkok in December and we were talking uh, the other night about what we're planning on doing and we'll probably go and stay in Ampawa and then we can do like bicycle rides and that kind of thing. We can walk around, maybe go down to Prapadang or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll do a... a uh, a friend of ours, Chin, who does um, chili paste tours, will do like a street food walk or something like that with her. And then before you know it, like we're there four days before we go to Kokut. Um, and so in those four days, we will have done a fair bit, but it's going to all be very low key. And I'm sure my wife is planning on spending a significant amount of time not doing anything. So, um, you know, We'll sort of see how it shakes out. But, yeah, definitely. And I wrote a piece um, last year about slow travel in Ho Chi Minh City. And I said what you should do is go there and pick one city block. doesn't matter which city block, any city block in Saigon, and spend a day in that city block. And it's amazing just how how much, because it's so dense there and they have all the little hang, hems and stuff, all the little laneways with coffee shops and food and God knows what else. And you can easily lose a day hmm. wandering one city block there. But instead you're sort of going to the War Crimes Museum and then this and then that and then up the tower and then to, to whatever. And it's like, slow down, smell the coffee. Yeah, I guess it's very rare we turn up places with just a couple days unplanned. Like, I'm going to go here, but I'm also just going to have two days with no plan at all and see what emerges. Like, we rarely do that, right? And that seems pretty valuable. So good call it. Yeah, I, I think it's um, like I do a bit of consulting on the side where I help people plan their trips. So they come and say, right, I'm going to Thailand for six weeks. What should I do? Like that kind of thing. And often you're, um, you're competing against the Joneses. Because when these people have never been to Thailand before, they have talked to their Aunt Nancy and the dude next door and whatever. And so these are all people they know who has told them what they have to do. Mm-hmm. And so they've got these, you know, I had this one woman who got, came to me. She had a Excel spreadsheet for a three-month trip in Southeast Asia. She had broken up every day into five slots. And so she had filled up the entire spreadsheet. It was completely insane. She doesn't know who I am. And so I'm saying, well, maybe do less. And it becomes a battle. I guess it depends. Like some people do like to travel like that, but it doesn't uh, appeal to me. And I don't think it that style of travel doesn't really lend itself to Southeast Asia. I don't, gotcha. I don't think personally. Yeah. You know, because that, that, that kind of brings us full circle to something you'd mentioned earlier about uh, just like unplanned getting off the, the bus. And as you just said, stopping to smell the flowers, like in, in Asia, there's always so many different modes of local transportation that make it 
kind of fun and interesting to explore. And you mentioned staying in that crappy hotel and interacting with the local people. When you travel locally style, you get to, to mingle with, with more local people and in a way that's fun for them too. Cause they're like, Ooh, look at this guy and his son or daughter, like on, on this bus with us, you know? So they, they want to get to know you. So it seems to me that it is sort of a applicable style of travel across Asia in, in, in a lot of good ways. But you mentioned, you know, doing some consulting and you talked about your friend who did like a food tour. I think it was Chili Paste. We'll have some of the links to this stuff uh, yeah. on the show notes, talktravelasia.com. Sure. Um, but do you know anybody else other than Travel Fish uh, that, that's actively promoting this or, or is facilitating it? Like how is, is there like a, you know, a slow travel stamp of approval organization or anything coming along the pipes yet that you've heard of? Not, not really. I mean, there's like I'm in the middle of sort of refashioning the entire site into something a bit different um, that is more focused on on slow travel and sustainable travel. But there, there's so many different organizations and that are doing various accreditations and like Booking.com has this whole thing about sustainability that's yeah, a bit iffy. But I mean, like there's lots of different people and so it can be very difficult to sort of figure out. Um, and that's why, like, I sort of keep falling back to this thing of saying, you know, just slowing down. And, I mean, if you think back to, uh, say, like the, the late 90s, when, um, like, Vietnam was, like, had just opened, Laos was open, but not very much of it. Cambodia was still pretty iffy. And so people would come out to this part of the world for three months, and they would spend that three months in Thailand. And so that this is when this was like the golden years for like um, for Isan and stuff where people were traveling all through like places that you just don't see travelers anymore in uh, foreign travelers in, in Thailand. And then as those other countries opened up and became much better traveled, people still came for the same three months. But in those three months, they were visiting four countries. It really comes back to the individual to sort of say, well, maybe I just need to save all that other stuff for another trip, you know? Yeah. And to, to slow down. I mean, people are just driven, I think, too much by trying to see everything, like the whole bucket list mentality and everything. So as we kind of wind up, I took some notes here. And, and I mean, you said you avoid flying travel by land or when you can do the trip in 18 hours, sort of seek out those sustainable locally owned businesses. I like that, like keeping money you spend in a place and, and having a smaller footprint stay longer. But I wrote down some things and I wonder, I'm going to blast through them. Can these things be part of slow travel sure. or not? Like, do you need to avoid popular restaurants? Do you need to avoid places that have TripAdvisor recommended on the front? Can you go to the key big sites? <laughs> Do you need to avoid your using your phone or guidebooks? And what just resonated all was kind of you said that three-month trip is just talk to people instead. Like, should you just be talking to people to mm. find out what and where to go and stuff rather than all these other things I've just named? Unfortunately, there's no hard and fast rule. I mean, like on the food, I, I say um, eat local. I don't mean local like KFC, uh, but, you know, I mean – KFC is very popular in Thailand. I mean, but eat locally. Uh, I don't drink anymore, so, I mean, booze isn't, like, a, an issue. But, I mean, obviously drinking local booze versus imported booze, staying in locally owned businesses. Another thing that I've tried to do but I haven't been too successful with it 
is on each trip to spend time with some kind of community-based tourism scheme. Um, so to find something, whether it's something where I, I do whatever they're doing or I interview them for a story or, or whatever, you know. Um, but that's actually been a little bit more difficult than I expected to find things that were actually the kind of things I'm looking for. But Thailand's got some really good projects around that kind of stuff. So, you know, and looking for tour companies, like if you're going to be doing uh, organized stuff in country, trying to use local operators where possible. I mean, it's like a, it's a big list and you're never going to be able to tick everything, but the more stuff you can tick, the better. And some stuff you're never going to tick, you know, like don't eat meat. I'm, like, that, I'm never going to do that. But I mean, that's that would be a good one to do if you're like thinking about carbon and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's picking and choosing and seeing how far you can go. And then next time you do a trip, try and do a little bit more than a little bit more. You know, the year before the pandemic, I went through KLIA in KL uh, 48 times in a year. Wow. And I don't ever, ever want to see that airport again. So, like, I cut my flying back by more than half. Um, and then next year, I will try and cut it back more again. I mean, there's, it's not possible for me to cut it entirely because this is what I do for a living. But I'm certainly being a lot more judicious and I'm not flying to Bangkok to see a mate for beers on a Friday night, which is what I did in 2018. That's awesome, Stuart. Um, you've enlightened me a bit. You've got me thinking a bit more about it and also thinking of conversations I've had with people in the business the last little while. So I really admire what you're doing. I love that you've shifted gears. You've gone back to school and thank you for sharing the concept behind slow travel with us, Stuart. Yeah, no problem. My pleasure. It's great to have you on again. It was fun. Yeah, thank you. Well, Scott, it was great having Stuart back on the show. I like, uh, he, he's a good guest. He's got that slow travel vibe in his delivery and, uh, his experiences are, you know, it, it, it sounded so casual and easy and stuff. And, you know, to some degree, those two example trips he gave, uh, maybe they weren't the, the, the best examples we could have come up with for the perfect slow travel experience. Um, but I like his philosophy of trying to apply it whenever he can. Yeah, absolutely. And it made me realize that 99% of the time I travel, you do want to see and experience as much as you can. So you tend to plan things each day, not necessarily the whole day, but things each day. And there's been a couple times where I've just been places for those extra days. And because you don't know what there is there. And you just kind of then when you're there, like someone invites you to do something or you learned about something you would have only learned by being there. And there's value in that. And I think whenever somebody asks me about going to Siem Reap, I think the first thing I always say is like, stay another day or two, like stay a couple more days because you don't want to be rushed to see it all in, in a short period of time. But plus there's just going to be stuff that pops out. So I'm going to try and force myself on the next trip to, to budget in there a couple of days with nothing planned. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's interesting because we recently recorded both the you and I episodes of our first trip to Asia. And, uh, that was before that we were carrying phones around. And, and, and I think the, the style of travel was a bit slower back then. 
So uh, yeah, it's it's nice for people to maybe think about trying to to take it a little bit more slowly. And uh, I think people are from the ones that I've met here in Siem Reap. A lot of people just roll in and they're not looking to rush it. And, you know, it used to be that everybody wanted to see as many temples of Angkor in one day as possible. And I was like, you know, it's better just to... Mm-hmm. Take your time. Just if you're going to go for a day, go for a day and, and enjoy what whatever you go to see. Don't try to have this list that you're constantly behind schedule right. on. And, you know, the schedules should be something you leave behind to some degree when you're on holiday. Yeah. And recording this is timely, you know, because about a week and a half ago, I had dinner with Dan Fraser, who owns Smiling Obino, and we were talking about something we had both done in the last few years. And that was consciously not taking your phone out sometimes, right? So he had a recent example. He'd gone to, I believe, a nice restaurant or something in a a different place than where he lives, and he didn't take his phone. And it took me back to, I must admit, it's been a while, but it was about four years ago, and I was in uh, Phnom Penh, and I saw you, but I went out to the Elephant Bar one night, and before I went out from my hotel, I'm like, I'm going to a nice bar, like, I don't need my phone. And I spent multiple hours, you know, just sitting there and looking at people and talking to the bartender. And I did it another time that trip. And so my point is, I think that kind of qualifies as slow travel in a way, like avoiding these modern distractions and doing that. And then while we were talking to Stuart, I also thought of something that I think maybe qualifies as slow travel and that sometimes I've picked a place on a map wherever I am and, and it's deliberately far away, like usually, you know, an hour and a half to two hours away. And just sort of walk there and just see what you see along the way. And if you see somewhere you want to pop into, you go in there. But I remember the first time I did that was like 30 years ago in, in Tokyo. And I was like, I'm going to walk to Budokan because I'd heard of it from Cheap's Tricks album, Budokan. So I'm like, well, let's walk to Budokan. And it took us hours, but we just saw stuff along the way. So I kind of, I'm going to say that's slow travel too. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Because that's... Uh always kind of been my philosophy you know we talked about it on some previous episodes but something i like to do is only buy like the first night of my hotel in a certain destination and i like to spend the first Mm. day in a city walking it as much as possible and and lots of times trying to find a place i'd rather move into you know like i'll I'll pick a couple of destinations that i want to walk and i'll pretty much walk all day and just explore and try and get my bearings but maybe find a an area that that i prefer to spend more time in um and and when you walk and you see things like even versus a bicycle or or a motorbike it's almost like the slower you're going the more information like you're getting you're seeing more you're experiencing more you're smelling more you know you're, you're you're interacting more so uh yeah walking is definitely on the top of my list and and then you know just there's a lot to see in each destination. Like, you know, you could go to Chiang Mai and it's the city, it's the province. There's a lot to see and do in one province that, that could take you months if you wanted to, you know, mm. right. You could spend a month in Chiang Mai and not see it all. Right. So you don't have to see seven provinces and 10 different countries in two weeks. It's just, uh, you won't even remember it all. No, it's a good point. You'll never see it all at all. Um, so yeah, this was a good conversation, a nice way to start thinking, about future trips and and how we do them. Remember, if you've enjoyed this show, become a patron like Chris R. Thank you, Chris R. and other patrons. 
They sponsor the show from a handful of dollars a month upwards. They get a warm, fuzzy feeling knowing they help cover the costs and keep this going, but they also get a special bonus episode in between these episodes you're hearing now that sometimes is a conversation sometimes it's a video and chris r i will give credit he called out something i said on our toilet stories <laughs> episode he said i loved your term blast soil which i didn't even realize i'd said and i've been laughing about it ever since so thank you chris r for reminding me of blast soil and your sponsorship trevor why don't you wrap this up yeah thanks chris thanks scott thanks Stuart. thanks patrons and all of our listeners and uh yeah we've queued up a bunch of great episodes got lots of good uh returning guests as well as new guests so uh we hope you enjoy it uh, if you do please support the show otherwise uh just come back in two weeks and uh scott and i'll be there talking with someone about something thanks for joining us on talk travel asia we look forward to sharing with you again soon Hey Scott, do you remember the time we walked on top of the wall at Angkor Thom and Cam-